is the fourth week of a five-week series on the, the true story of the whole world. And, and we've talked about creation, and we've talked about corruption, and we've talked about community last week. And this week we talk about the cross. Uh, churchman, uh, some of you might know this name, John Stott, uh, once said, there is no Christianity without the cross. If the cross is not central to our religion, ours is not the religion of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul said, among other things, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So today, in a short amount of time, we ask, why the cross? We don't have the time at all, not even close to exhaust all of the personal, the cosmic, the societal significance, the what and the how of the cross. There's theories of atonement that fill libraries, how we're specifically saved and being saved by Jesus' cross, his death, his resurrection. The mechanics of how God has chosen to reveal his rescue. Perhaps we'll do a whole series on that at some point. But what I'm interested in today is why the cross? Not that God cho- not, not that God chose to save the world, but why he chose to do it in such an odd way. Not that God's goal since being dethroned by our ancestors in the garden was to reclaim his reign over good creation, but that his kingdom would come by means of capital punishment. We've seen, we've all seen, uh, you know, at football games, that guy with the, the rainbow wig and the John 3.16 sign. Most of us can recite it by heart. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Thank you. You might have a different translation. I think it, it, sometimes it's easy for us to grasp the enormity of God's love. Quantity seems to be kind of a given for an infinite, almighty God. But a lesser considered part of that really well-known verse is that God loved the world just so that he gave his son. In just such a specific, mysterious way, he works our salvation. Today we'll look at uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. I'll invite um, Stacia and Adam to come up and, and read. And we'll explore that way, the cross. Yeah, and, uh, you can do it here. If you want. All right. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not uh, to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thanks, guys. So in the, in the last several weeks, we've, we've traced how God created the world from abundance and, and love and grace in community for the sake of flourishing. We saw how that creation rebelled. I mean, there were cracks of corruption spoiling the community of creation. Mankind's calling to work with God got damaged. And we bear the scars of this sort of fragmentation in our relationships, uh, the way we think of ourselves, the way we, the things we take our cues from, the places and things that our, our time and our attention and our money and our imaginations go towards. Last week we saw that small start of God's rescue plan through the surprising work of calling a people to himself, blessing them that they might bless the whole world. Instead of an army, he calls a family. Instead of waving a magic wand or, or pointing a magic bullet, he comes into a messy world of redeeming messy people, and then he lets them be his representatives a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation belonging to God, declaring his praises of the one who brought them out of darkness into his marvelous light. The rest of the Old Testament scripture traces the life of this people, Israel. There are seasons of obedience where they're close to God. There are seasons of disobedience where they're in exile. They're out of their land. They're out of their depth. The times that they lived in contrast with the injustice and the idolatry of those around them. The times that they were as bloodthirsty, sinful, and unfaithful as anyone. The Old Testament that we hold in our hands ends hanging in anticipation for God to send a Savior. The one who'd rescue and reform Israel around himself. The righteous one who would rise to vindicate Israel from her foes, to renew her worship and to usher in a, a reign, a kingdom of peace and justice. And then coincidentally, the New Testament starts with a genesis of its own. Matthew's first chapter, and this is the one we skip over unless it's Christmas time and then we still kind of read through it fast because it's a genealogy and, and begets, 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 gets really old. Abraham begets Isaac, dot, dot, dot. Je Jacob begets Joseph, husband of Mary, mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. That's how Matthew starts. The scene is set. Rescue is afoot. It won't be long. And our scripture today that Adam and Stacia read is an early Christian hymn about Christ. Like us, uh, ancient people did some of their, their best theology in meter, right, in song, like a rap or a campaign jingle, you know. Whenever there's a controversy about how to iron out just how, how divine and how human Christ had to be to be faithful to the narrative of Scripture for our salvation, then they would just make up a song. Why, why wouldn't you just sing a song about that which is unassumed is unhealed. Joey can probably tell 
all of you about this because he's in early church history and he reads a lot of Greek guys right now. These kind of songs are catchy, you know. They're kind of like the, there's a, a pro-prohibition jingle in 1884 America that said Rome, Romanism and rebellion, those are the bad people, right? Or like McKinley, when he was trying to get elected, his was pretty mellow, he said, let well enough alone. That was his jingle, or, or you know, more recently, yes, we can. Paul's Christ hymn gets at the heart of the character of Christ, though. His mindset. It's a, it's a whole pattern of life. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited. But instead, he emptied himself. He took the form of a slave. He was born in human likeness. You see, the first line gets something that preachers have to work really hard at <laughs> every, every year. You see, it's not very hard to kind of get people's attention with the crucifixion. You know, Good Friday kind of sells itself. <laughs> you know, and they say in, in the news, like, if it bleeds, it leads. That's Good Friday. But it's a, it's a little more difficult, you know, on Christmas Eve to take that story back from a, a really benign narrative of a baby in a manger, you know, silent night. But the, the, fir the first part of this verse says, though Jesus was in the form of God, he didn't consider equality with God to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. This hints at just how crazy, how, what a category error it is, even for Christ to become human. That, God, that the scandal of the cross starts with Jesus' birth. Think about this. A loving community that God had, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would let one of their indispensable ones out of their company. They'd part with them into such risky circumstances. A lot of you guys in this room are parents. And I know there's some parents of college-age kids. There's some parents of adult kids. There's parents of really little kids. Consider the risk of sending your beloved baby to be fostered, not just in a place you might think is unsafe, but into a place you know is unsafe, like the swamp for my cousin. And then extrapolate that feeling out like times infinity, considering Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been together forever, for eternity in a loving, giving, honoring dance. And now suddenly they part company. Paul's, Paul's hymn recognizes that category error, recognizes that, being, that someone being in the form of God is now entering into the form of humanity requires a total emptying. That Jesus emptied himself rather than exploiting, exploiting any status he rightfully owned. At his birth, as in his death on the cross, he was stripped bare. In a time and place that we live, that everyone's obsessed with their rights, <laughs> that my rights are not impinged upon by anyone or anything, it seems really inconceivable that God, who created the universe, the only one with a right to anything, 
might abandon those rights for our sake. We begin to realize, even in the incarnation, Jesus' birth, that God is not a God of strength and weakness, not a God of power and weakness, but the God of power in weakness. And the next line says, And being found in human form, Christ humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This hymn is even surprised, even death on a cross. Christ's humility and his downward mobility goes even further. To be fair, we, we have quite neglected, uh, we've often neglected kind of plotting all those points between Jesus' birth and his death you know, we, that we get in the Gospels, maybe. You know, his, his, the way he lived, the things he taught, uh, the things he gave up. You know, if you go in the Gospels, um, we kind of get a, a preview of this, uh, of this uh, way of, of living, this sacrifice. When, when we see Jesus uh, right before he goes into the desert, he's tempted, and he, he forgoes food, he forgoes power, he forgoes uh, eternal life. He, he empties himself, he humbles himself, he becomes obedient. Even Mark's gospel, it's called, a, it's called a passion narrative with an extended introduction. We find all those elements, teaching, healing, calling disciples, proclaiming the gospel that God's kingdom is coming. The, the hymn writer seems a little confused or a little uh, surprised that this death would even be death on a cross. So why, again, my question, why the cross? Well, for one, and this should be a scandalous statement, the cross gives us a picture for God. It shows us who God is and how God is. The deeply ironic why of the cross is that when God got a chance to reshape the world, he chose to do it in the shape of a cross. I don't think the cross is an outlier for the giving, sacrificial, strength in weakness character of God. As Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote in Discipleship, the earthly form of Christ is the form that died on the cross and the image of God is the image of Christ crucified. The image of God is the image of Christ crucified. Which means that we need to completely reboot our imaginations of what God is like. From some kind of celestial old guy with Morgan Freeman's voice or James Earl Jones booming down from the clouds. When we think of God, we need to think of Christ on the cross, the image of the invisible God. If we look back, it's kind of like when you see a, a movie with a, with a major twist at the end, you look back, you watch The Sixth Sense again the second time, and you saw it coming the whole time if you were looking for it. The God that created the world did so with power, but also with tenderness. Spilling over grace, speaking wor- worlds into existence with his words, breathing life into a lump of clay. 
we've seen and experienced this with God's interaction with his creation. God's burning bush moments, his speaking out of a whirlwind, are way, way fewer and further between than a still small voice. You know, that white noise that's always there in the background that we don't stop long enough and are not quiet enough to hear. Perhaps the cross isn't an outlier at all. Maybe it's the actual grain of the universe and we're the ones that took things in a different direction. Perhaps we're the ones that decided that we needed to do everything possible to hide and shield and protect, to look like we're powerful and in control, to speak in a deep voice. Meanwhile, God is not a God of power and weakness, but the God of power and weakness. Secondly, the cross shows us about ourselves. When Jesus dies, he dies with us. When Jesus dies, he dies with us. He enters into our evil and our sin and our suffering to subvert it, to create a new way. He knows the exact terrain of our fears and our pain because he's walked there. God didn't pull up short of our entire human experience. Don't get me wrong, this doesn't, this doesn't glorify our suffering. It doesn't negate our suffering either. We don't cheer and look for opportunities to suffer. We also don't ignore when we are suffering. Rather, when we suffer, we keep our ears and eyes open to, to meet Christ there as our guide, as our companion, as one who's died with us. When Jesus dies, he also dies instead of us. He enters into our sin, our, our wrath, and our death. I doubt the cross was a, a total surprise for Jesus. Uh, and, and by that I, I mean... You don't just all of the sudden get crucified. <laughs> it didn't come out of nowhere. I think his whole life was headed in that direction. Every small choice of self-denial and sacrifice led to his ability to ultimately deny himself and sacrifice himself on the cross. Jesus died instead of us because he also lived instead of us. He's a new Adam, overruling the old Adam because one sin, all have sinned, and because one died, all have died. And one rose, and we rise. Jesus died, when Jesus dies, Jesus dies for us. His death forgives our sin, declares us right absorbs the wrath of God against us and creates new life where there once was only death. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He frees us for the freedom of loving God, of loving others, of restoring the world. He unlocks the shackles of our sin that we've come to love and that we've come to participate in. Sometimes we, we polish our own shackles. <laughs> He restores us to communion with God, communion with ourselves, communion with others. A couple weeks ago when we talked about corruption, we talked about how, how corruption and sin makes us divided. He unites us. 
while we were still enemies, still in our sin, Christ died for us. And one author puts it, he went solo and unaided into the whirlpool of evil so that he might exhaust its force on him and let the rest of the world go free. We lay out all the ways we think the world should work at the foot of the cross, at his nail scars and his feet. We lay our pretensions down. We, we lay all those identities that we, we want to be, where we think we want to be. Our possessions we lay down. We, the ways we are complicit in the suffering of others, we lay them down. We come with empty hands. All of our stuff we give over. Because nothing else really matters when you're standing in, son of, in front of someone who died for you. God is not a God of power and weakness, but the God of power in weakness. And then lastly, the cross puts a thumb in the eye of a brutal world. It renders powerless all of the supposed violent, fear-inducing power, and I do that with air quotes, of institutions or groups or individuals that bully and hate. The cross unmasks. It disarms. Paul writes to the church of Colossae that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Any accusations, any fear, any pressure that we might feel pales in comparison to what Christ has done on the cross. We'll never be more exposed, more naked, more fearful, more alone than Christ was. Even the guys that he ate his last dinner with abandoned him, scattered like roaches. And included with Christ, we'll never not taste the victory and vindication of his resurrection. Conquering sin and death by beating the system, <laughs> kind of. No longer does that kind of math work. No longer does sin equal death, but rather Christ's death equals new life. And then at the end of Philippians, uh, the Christ hymn in Philippians 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do the math here with me. If God shows himself, reveals what he's really like by hanging on a cross in a brutal, sacrificial, weak, foolish way, and we as a community claim to know God, to be joined to him in Christ, to be renewed by his spirit, that must mean that we're supposed to look that way too. That our encounter with the cross leaves us cross-shaped. And that's our witness to the world. Sometimes it's a judgment on the ways of the world. Maybe our city on the hill that we're always looking to be. Maybe it's like the sanctuary. Maybe it's cruciform. Maybe our best apologetic, the ways we try to explain ourselves, is weakness. It's vulnerability. It's 
the creativity that comes out of not having anything. <laughs> because we know a different sort of strength and we're secure in a very different way. My father-in-law really loves these missionary biographies. And that's like the most depressing kind of reading, right? That's like reading the Titanic over and over and over. You know how it's going to end. Pygmies are going to probably eat you. But I don't think that's the only kind of cross-living. Like, that's like a pretty extreme example, right? And, and, and like we, we want to like commission people to go do that. And, and it's pretty easy to see like a crazy disproportionate amount of people with Ebola right now, Westerners and not Westerners, have Ebola because they were in West Africa on Christian missions. Like, <laughs> but there's a lot of other ways just in our daily lives that we do this kind of cross-living, that we can, that, that are available for us. And I don't want to neuter the cross of its weird strength, but like, I, I'll tell you what I see. I see these global Christians powered by the cross contracting Ebola, Right now, I see it, and not just the Western ones. I also see moms powered by the cross that are living their lives for their families and their neighbors, waking up at obscene times, pumping fluid from their bodies, and like single-handedly like rearing a human being that was once in their stomach. We talked about this the other day. It's like an alien thing for a guy. I see it in young adults, even ones in this room and next door, that powered by the cross, they abandon more lucrative careers, you know, people who the sky is the limit, and they instead take a job that pays less, far less glorious, and some, some of those are a Venn diagram with moms, in order to serve, to be a blessing to others for the sake of obedience to a calling. I see dads powered by the cross that are doing things like washing dishes and running to the grocery store and folding laundry and doing crazy things for their kids and stomaching very specific opinions about how things should be done at home. I, I see that sometimes. <laughs> I also see kids powered by the cross, right? Sometimes we forget how well kids get this. I mean, sure, their kids are also selfish and maniacs a lot of the times, but sometimes they're, they're not smart enough to not know this. Smart enough. They learn how to share. They learn how to not forget how to love people with costly, unconditional love that somehow they intuit. So I pray for this community, this Oak Church community, this community that God is gathering together and forming and growing and, and just like the mystery of, of the harvest or, or a tree that, that it kind of just, just grows. You water it and one person waters it and another uh, cares in other ways for it. I pray that our community is a community of the cross. And I think that means making constant, small, self-emptying, sacrificial, 
and maybe even seemingly insignificant choices to be a blessing to others. That's my prayer for us. That's a pretty simple prayer. I pray that like Fanny Crosby's old tune, that we can honestly sing together, Jesus, keep me near the cross. And I, I pray that, that we sing that in the first person plural and in the third person plural. I pray that we might be a, a cross-shaped people, knowing and witnessing God's saving power in weakness. Pray with me. Uh, Father, I thank you so much for the cross. I thank you for that moment of sacrifice, but I also thank you for that whole life of obedience, that whole pattern of living that Jesus showed us how to be human. I thank you that it that he perfectly reflects you, how you are, who you are. I thank you that you call us to image you, to show you to this world, and to look like that. Father, give us the security, the peace, the confidence to abandon everything for the sake of you, for your kingdom to empty ourselves, our egos, our, all of our reserves, whatever form those take. Because we trust that you're enough. We trust that power comes in weakness. Align ourselves with you. I thank you for your son. Uh, he did that for us. He did it instead of us. He does it with us. I thank you for the new world, all the creative possibilities that that makes possible. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.